No, but he, he just refers to it once in a while. Once in a while we get around to talking about the Bible in here. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to trust that the folks online have me broadcasting online. So good morning, everyone. And thank you. And welcome to our Christology class. Now, just to bring you up to speed, in the first couple of chapters, <clears throat> we were looking at the errors, ancient and modern, in regard to Christology. And we're finding out that in some respects, there's nothing new under the sun. Every heresy is basically a denial of one of these three points. Jesus is true God, true man, one person. Basically, every heresy attacks one of those three points. And just might take you a minute to figure out, but that's what's going on. So uh, the Orthodox Christian faith, um, supported by the foundation of the scriptures, wants to proclaim these truths over and against those who are in error. In chapter 3... Uh, which we finished last week, we looked at the pre-existence and incarnation of the Son of God, and we spent a good deal of time um, looking at John's Gospel as uh, some of our biblical foundation. And then at the, well, I should say, toward the end of last week, we entered into this new chapter, The Virgin Birth of Christ. This is chapter 4. So, again, we've established the pre-existence of the Son of God prior to his incarnation. We've talked briefly about his incarnation. Now we're talking about the virgin birth of Christ, which, of course, modern scholarship has attacked. And has attacked basically on the grounds that, I mean, as they attack all things always these days, this is a later addition by the Christian churches, by the Christian community, uh, Nobody originally understood that Jesus was born of a virgin. This was later added in because other Greek myths seem to have this theme. And the thought is, so therefore we want Jesus to have it too? I mean, it's bizarre anyway. But what Dr. Scare has been showing us is that this, this teaching on the virgin birth is inherent in the scriptures itself. For example, for example Matthew quotes it. And Matthew is frequently thought to be uh, the earliest or second earliest of the Gospels. And Matthew quotes it on the basis of Isaiah 7. So, in other words, this teaching of the virgin birth really goes back all the way back to Isaiah, which is 800 years before Christ. In fact, you can trace that all the way back even further to Genesis chapter 3, where you have the Proto-Evangelium, the, the first proclamation of the Gospel, where this very strange phrase is used by God as he's speaking to the serpent, remember? He says, uh, the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Now the strange phrase is the seed of a woman. And of course in Jewish way of thinking and Jewish way of writing, even in our own modern biological understanding, women don't have Seed, And so what is this seed of the woman? The mystery of the virgin birth is right there. As, by the way, are the death and resurrection, of course, because the serpent bites his heel. There's the, there's the death, and yet he crushes the serpent's head. There's the resurrection. So it's all contained even all the way back there in Genesis chapter 3. All right, we then took a look very briefly at the... Uh, the accounts in Matthew and Luke's gospel about the virgin birth. We took a look, now we're on page 34, and if you recall, we took a look at Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he speaks of Jesus as being born of a woman, 
and that in a context where he talks about, uh, um, well, being born of Abraham. And so how, how poignant of a juxtaposition is this being born of Abraham versus being born of a woman? It's an unusual way to speak anyway, and then to have those two things contrasted so tightly by Paul clearly shows that Paul understands the virgin birth. And again, Galatians is one of the earlier, thought to be one of the earlier epistles as well. I think now you're talking probably the early half of the 50s is where most scholars would locate Galatians, unless that's changed. All right, then over to page 36 where we left off. And here, of course, we had a, a smattering of texts, and maybe I'll just review this with you by reading through it on the top of 36, related to the virgin birth. Scare writes, the great section on the parables, Matthew 13 and Mark 4, begins with the mother and brothers of Jesus desiring an audience with him. Rather than acceding to their request, Jesus claims his disciples, those who do his Father's will as his new family, my brother and sister and mother. Of course, what doesn't he say? My father. That would be the natural place to do it, but he says no such thing. Scare comments, what is striking is the absence of any designation of those doing the fathers, that is Mark, uh, in Mark God's uh, will as his father. Jesus is replacing his original or earthly family with his followers, the church, as his new family. No one can take the place of his earthly father simply because he has none. Similar in this argument to Matthew and Mark is John 6. In response to Jesus' claim that it is the will of God his father, that one who believes in the Son has eternal life, the Jews asserted that he is the son of Joseph. To this response, Jesus does not directly reply, but continues to speak of his Father as the one who draws those who come to him. These sections in Matthew, Mark, and John presuppose that Jesus knew that he had no earthly father, and show that the question of his glory, uh, is, of his origins, arose already during his ministry. And that that'll be obvious to you, just as you simply recall to yourself hearing various gospel lessons throughout your years as a Christian, reading the gospels, that Jesus is in many places attacked and has to deal with uh, this attack that he is born of Joseph. Don't we know his parents? Isn't he from Nazareth? This kind of thing uh, to his claims. So the point being that when you look at the New Testament writings, the Gospels, when you look at the Pauline writings, Galatians, for example, th there's an awareness of Jesus', Jesus virgin birth. When you go to Jesus himself, there's an awareness of his virgin birth. There's even a an awareness among those who are hostile to him that this is the claim, right? Because they're, you know, in some places they accuse him of being a child of fornication. Because why? They don't believe Mary's claim that, you know, 
she was overshadowed by the, by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Most High, and conceived and gave birth to a son. So they see him as the product of fornication. All right, so all of these charges are made even by hostile witnesses, thus showing definitively that uh, they and Jesus himself are aware of this claim to virgin birth. Make sense? All right, so that's where we are so far. Now, let's skip down to the next paragraph. Scare writes, John 6, where Jesus ignores the assertion that Joseph is his real father, finds a close parallel in the pericope of the boy Jesus in the temple, Luke chapter 2. In response to Mary's concern that Jesus has troubled her and his father, he responds that it was necessary for him to attend to the matter to the matters of his father, that is, God. So you remember that? Mary says, look, you've, you know, your father and I have been looking all over for you. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I mean, that's a, that's a polite and, as polite and humble of a way as you can possibly correct your parents. <laughs> uh, my father is not the one who is looking for me. I happen to be in my father's house right now. So even from this account, then, we see Jesus' self-awareness of his virgin birth and of God being his father, even when he's only 12 years old. And, of course, not only does this positively give evidence of the virgin birth and his awareness of it, but negatively, it, it puts to bed this 20th century idea that Jesus slowly became conscious of his messiahship. Nonsense. At 12, he already understands that. Um, and, of course, it goes earlier than that as well. Uh, but the basis for that is simply the fact that he's God incarnate and knows all things. Uh, but here, definitively proven um, that he understands himself to be the Messiah. All right, let's, uh, let's carry on right where we left off on about the sixth line down in that paragraph. All of the Gospels even apart from any direct reference to the conception narratives, exclude Joseph as being paternally responsible for Jesus. Luke reports the actual situation in which Jesus was conceived, with an announcement of the angel Gabriel and the coming of the Holy Spirit, who is responsible for the conception itself. Matthew's report emphasizes that Joseph is not the father by opening his narrative with his musing about what to do with Mary, his supposedly adulterous wife, whom he assumes to be pregnant by another man. You remember this from Matthew chapter 1. This is Joseph's assumption. It would be anyone's assumption, right? Joseph knows that she is pregnant, but the evangelist does not say whether Mary has told him the details of her pregnancy or whether he accepts her account as the truth or as a fabrication to cover up what really happened. His plan to divorce her suggests that he did not accept her explanation of her pregnancy. The matter is resolved when the Lord's angel tells Joseph in a dream that he should take Mary as his wife since her child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Matthew's beginning 
the account of Jesus' life with an account of the alleged adultery of Mary strongly suggests that allegations about his illegitimacy surfaced in the first century. Because again, why is Matthew going to write and design things in this way unless this was an issue, you know, a, a something to be addressed? Scare continues, the same issue was raised again in the second century by Celsus, an opponent of Christianity, who was answered by Origen. The prominence given by Matthew to the alleged adultery of Mary suggests that this was an issue which Jesus himself had to face. This is important since the idea that the virgin birth is an impossibility is often viewed as a modern notion. This is simply not true. All right, so yet a little bit more data to add in terms of Jesus' own life and consciousness as well as Matthew, what Matthew is dealing with there and other first century Christians are dealing with obviously this charge that Jesus was illegitimate. So Matthew opens his gospel addressing precisely that charge, not illegitimate, but born of God. Okay, any thoughts you have, any clarifications, um, any comments? If not, we'll simply flip the page and head over to page 38. Yeah. Mm. without sin, holy, <laughs> right. and how far back does this go? So the question is, how do we deal with that? Do we say that sin isn't passed on through the mother or what? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. I'll try to recap as best I can for those who weren't able to hear you online. So we, we've noted that the Roman Catholics, because, because Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary and because he's sinless, they want to see Mary herself as sinless. How do you have Mary as a descendant of Adam be herself sinless? So you end up having this immaculate conception of Mary. And the question is, how far back do you have to go with these immaculate conceptions? Yeah, I, in the first place, I think, I think the most solid foundation is Mary's own words and her own confession in the Magnificat where she calls God her Savior. So if you don't need saving, then you don't call God your Savior. Okay. Um, so there's that. There's also a little bit of an argument from silence, but it's fine. I mean, nowhere does Scripture, nowhere does scripture testify that she's sinless, obviously. Uh, nowhere is that claim ever made. It is made only of Jesus. And where it's made of Jesus, it's made as if he's the only one. It never says Jesus and Mary, which is kind of an important detail, uh, at least if uh, that theory of the Roman Catholics is to hold. So some of the church fathers address this, but they tend to address this more in the way that I've just done. This is what the scriptures say. We have no reason to believe or think that Mary was sinless. We have no, no need. Um, we really need no other theory. Let's say she's entirely sinful, um, as, if, as if God couldn't simply take that flesh and purify it and become incarnate within it. Of course he can. I mean, that's just, it's just taking away the disease from the material, you know. Um, so, there, so there's really no problem there. Um, I, I will just add this data point, but again, nothing really hinges upon it or, or rests upon it. 
some of the church fathers, and I think Luther included, though I'd want to go back and double check this, assert that, uh, that sin is passed on um, through the father, through the seed of Adam. Okay? Thus, everyone conceived from the fall in the natural, normal way, the sin of Adam is passed on through the seed of man, the, through, through the father. And thus, thus, if you have that being true, the mother in and of herself does not pass that on. Even though she has it, she does not pass that on. And so in this respect, then, you can see how uh, Christ would be born sinless, born of a virgin. Um, there's no male to pass on the sin of Adam. Again, just to reiterate, we don't need that in order to to really have a biblical foundation for asserting that Mary, in all likelihood, is, is just like us. But thank you for that, uh, yeah, that comment, that opportunity. All right, over on uh, page 38, we are introduced to uh, another data point and an interesting idea, this one uh, contingent upon a rejection of the of the semper virgo, the doctrine that um, Mary remained forever virgin, which of course, I think, was basically unanimously held throughout the church up until like the 20th century or something like that. So, so you have to reckon with it. Um, but Dr. Scare, to, to the best of my knowledge, does not hold to that, even though he's quite respectful of it, as you'll see. Um, it's interesting data point no matter what. And of course, there's different ways to think about this. Uh, so simply take this for what it's worth. Page 38, and from the top, let's count three, six, seven, about seven lines down. We're just going to pick up in the middle of the, of the sentence. Um, so pardon the grammar as it's read. The Jews to Jesus, uh, the response of the Jews to Jesus, that they are not the children of fornication, John 8:41 with the implication that he perhaps was. So if you, you remember, we are not the children of fornication, implies that they, they assumed he was. They were accusing him of that. Scare continues, the fact that the first two sons of Joseph were named James, which of course in Hebrew is Jacob, and Joseph, uh, Matthew 13.55 is the reference Scare gives, the names of Joseph's father and Joseph himself. Okay, this is a really interesting point that Scare has. So, so it was Jewish custom then that your firstborn is the name of your dad, and the secondborn is your name. Make sense? So my name's Jeremy, my dad's named Paul. My firstborn would be named Paul, my firstborn son, my secondborn son would be named Jeremy. Okay. So you see James and Joseph. In other words, what's going on in Joseph's mind? Let's assume this is all true and this is all fine. What's going on in Joseph's mind? Is he counting Jesus as his son? No. If he was, Joseph would have named Jesus as uh, Jacob or James. Make sense? But, but the fact that he doesn't and then the fact that after Jesus he goes on with shows that he does not claim Jesus as his own biological son. Okay. That's the argument being made. So, as Scare goes on to say, this all indicates that these sons had a relationship to Joseph, which Jesus did not have. Joseph assumes the legal paternity of Jesus by obeying the angel's command to give him his name, although he is not his real father. And thus, in light here, too, you can see why it's essential that the angel give the name. 
because it, it's, not the, it's not the name Joseph normally would have chosen. Now you can see the footnote 9. Let's drop down to that footnote. Pieper, of course, Francis Pieper, Christian dogmatics, early 20th century, the standard of Lutheran dogmatics, really up into the present. I mean, while it has its problems, it's like by far better than anything else we have. And no matter what, you have to reckon with Pieper, okay? So you have to, even if you disagree with him, you have to deal with him. Uh, so Pieper notes that the view that Mary remained a virgin, Semper Virgo, after the birth of Christ was a position held by Luther and other Lutheran theologians. He does admit that, quote, if the Christology of a theologian is orthodox in all other respects, he is not to be regarded as a heretic for holding that Mary bore other children in a natural manner after she had given birth to the Son of God, end quote. However, Pieper sides with Luther, Chemnitz, et al. Of course, Chemnitz, the second uh, Lutheran, and many, uh, you know, the second Martin, I mean, and in many respects, the, the second in authority overall when you look at kind of Lutheranism in, in terms of like its, its persons, its characters, uh, it, would, it would pretty much go Luther, Chemnitz. Um, maybe arguably Melanchthon somewhere in there, either two or three, but uh, Melanchthon has troubles later on that Chemnitz doesn't. So, Pieper sides with Luther, Chemnitz, and others, and warns that one must not disparage those who hold the Semper Virgo point of view. The notion of Mary's perpetual virginity is one closely associated with the Christological theology of the church and should not simply be dismissed as a pious myth. Okay? So whether you hold to the Semper Virgo or not, um, the main point is don't condemn somebody who has the opposite opinion. <laughs> That's really the main point. Okay? So, uh, yes, I see a hand. I just think, I believe Luther writes that it's a waste of time. Okay, so the, yeah, the comment is that Luther sees this as a waste of time. That, that may be true. I don't know. I don't know. Luther has an astonishingly high view of Mary. About once a year, I try to channel Luther or directly quote Luther and do a Mary sermon because it's shocking to our Protestantized ears uh, to hear that, you know, you can stop short of seeing her as the divine mediatrix and pushing Christ out of the way, which modern Rome is doing. But don't get me started, which, of course, is neither scriptural nor traditional nor Catholic in any meaningful sense. It's completely an innovation, a modern innovation. Uh, be that as it may, um, we can still we can still hold to the hold to the semper virgo. We can still honor Mary without going to those unbiblical extremes, and we can still see her as the the first among women, for example. And, um, no doubt, as we've already seen, we can confess her not only as the Christotokos, the Christ bearer, but also as the Theotokos, the God bearer. And there's nothing wrong with calling her the mother of God. The one in her womb is God. Right, the one who is God calls her his mother. So, so should we? Uh, so that's really that's also what's really going on in the backdrop of of scarce quotation of Pieper and and Pieper's own language is um, how one speaks of Mary isn't so much the issue. How one speaks of Mary frequently is a litmus test for one's Christology, which is right underneath. You see, like if you've got a problem calling her the Theotokos, the God-bearer, that's not a problem that you have with Mary. That's actually a problem you have with 
Jesus because you're not able to say that he is God in human flesh. If you are, then clearly she's the God-bearer. God is in her womb. Uh, you, can't, you can't avoid that implication. Okay. So, again, whether you hold to the Semper Virgo or not, um, yeah, just don't condemn somebody who has the opposite opinion and recognize that what you confess about Mary, you, you want that to be a reflection of your Orthodox Christology, your Orthodox confession of Christ. All right, let's drop down to the next paragraph on 38. Here Scare writes, The question of whether or not the virgin birth was an absolute necessity may be considered frivolous, but it should still be posed. Could Jesus have come in any other way? While it is presumptuous to say what God may or can do, the virgin birth is not without its own inherent significance and necessity. The Gnostics held that Jesus had come complete from heaven, fitted out with a specially made body. If this had been the case, he would not have been our flesh and bone. Reference to Hebrews 2.14. So it does matter that he's flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. Otherwise, that which he does not assume, he does not redeem. Consider the other options, Scare writes. If Jesus had been conceived in an ordinary way, he would have been so completely like us that he would have been despised for his completely earthly origins. Although he was born in the likeness of men, sinful men, according to Philippians 2.6, he did not have sinfulness as part of his being. Paul addressed the same issue in Romans 8.3, quote, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, end quote. So there, I mean, just to pause, Paul, both in Philippians and in Romans, Christ comes in the likeness of human flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Does he actually come in sinful flesh? No in the likeness of it. All right, well, we're going to continue to articulate this with scare, but that's the take-home point. In the New Testament, flesh refers to humanity in its opposition to God. Jesus possessed our humanity, but unlike others, he conformed his entire life to God's will with no opposition. His conception by the Spirit and his birth from the Virgin Mary established him as the universal mediator between God and man, between heaven and earth, bridging in his person what originally belonged together but was disrupted by sin. As the second Adam, a reference to Romans 5, Jesus restores what was lost as a result of the sin of the first Adam, as the virgin birth functions as the divinely designated sign of who Jesus is, so the resurrection serves as the sign of divine approval of what Jesus did. Together, they serve as the foundational pillars for a Christology which confesses that Jesus, as God's Son, offered himself up as an acceptable sacrifice to the Father. 
So the virgin birth is even necessitated by Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, and to, and to be the Son of God in a way that is entirely unique than we ourselves become sons of God in the waters of baptism, of course. He's the only begotten. He's the unique Son of God, um, begotten before all worlds, etc., etc. Okay. So we want, to keep, we want to keep that distinction in mind, and yet for Jesus to be God's Son, that's the virgin birth. For Jesus to be raised by God, after his crucifixion, that's God's accepting of his sacrifice. And so both things then confirm that he is, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah. Okay, Scare continues on now with, uh, oh, did you have a comment or a question? Sure, go right ahead. Ah, yes. So the comment is on Athanasius, uh, Athanasius on this topic. Yes. Covering all the other possibilities and realizing that no other, no other possibilities can hold. This is the way it had to be. Right. And I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. It makes perfect sense, I think, to the biblical testimony. So, yeah, we, uh, we've gotten far away from this in our modern time with a question that, I, as I understand it, originates in the late medieval period. Uh, in some respects, it's one of the foundational questions that underpins the Reformation itself, but this idea of could, could all things have been other than they are? Okay. Uh, even God's morality, even the law, even God's own. I mean, ultimately how you answer that question is whether you end up being a Lutheran <laughs> and orthodox uh, in line with the church fathers, or whether you end up being a radical reformer who basically reconstrues God in his own image. Okay, well, it's a bit of a digression. Let's move on. So, page 39, first full paragraph there. The virgin birth is also a sign of divine monergism in the work of conversion. The sonship of Jesus through the Spirit's activity on the Virgin is unique, but is parallel to and sets the pattern for the Christian's sonship to God. Paul says as much when he asserts that God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, in order that we might receive the status, the status of sonship, and thus, like Jesus, might call God Father. The Spirit, active in the conception of Jesus, works to make us God's children through baptism. A similar thought is found in John's Gospel, where Christ's birth and the spiritual birth of the Christian are entwined. Uh, reference to John uh, 1.13, and, and we'll get that scriptural language down here just a little bit further a fact which is reflected in the manuscript tradition in this verse. The manuscript evidence is divided in rendering this passage as a reference either to Christians being born of God or to Christ's supernatural origins. Nothing vital is at stake since one meaning leads to or presupposes the other. The familiar reading is that God gives power or authority to those who believe on Jesus to become his children. Now quoting John 1, uh, 13. 
quote, who are not born of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, literally of male, but from God, end quote. Okay, what Scare's saying then, just to clarify, is th this language of, of who are born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but from God, um, that, that language can be taken to refer either to Christ or to Christians. And there's different manuscript evidence suggesting, I think, I mean, the, the latest commentary by our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod expert uh, ends, up, ends up leaning, contrary to the reading of, of the majority of the Orthodox Church Fathers, but more in keeping with the manuscript evidence itself, which, of course, they weren't privy to quite as much manuscript evidence as we have. Uh, in keeping with the manuscript evidence, he asserts that uh, this is most likely a reference to Christians, not Christ. But Scare's point is that it doesn't really matter. Either is completely true, isn't it? Uh, we, are, we are born as Christians, uh, as children of God, not by blood, not by flesh, not by the will of man, but by God. And Jesus, too. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. There is no will of man or blood or flesh or any, any human element involved. Uh, God concocted this plan. He's, he sent the angel Gabriel to speak the spirit-filled words to Mary. Mary believed, and the rest is history, as they say. So it's a monergistic act, whether we apply these words to Christ or to uh, <clears throat> Christians. All right, so let's just continue with scarce treatment right after the quote of, uh, right after the quote of John 1.13. The second reading refers to Jesus, who had no human father, for God was his only father. Thus, one is able to find support for the virgin birth in the Gospel of John, in spite of the claims of some that the virgin birth only has support in Matthew and Luke. Such an interpretation would fit nicely with the next words, quote, and the word was made flesh, end quote. The composite meaning would be the one who had for a father no male but God became a human being just like us. It also would make a clear distinction between the incarnation and the humiliation. This distinction was expressed in the Nicene Creed with the words, quote, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. End quote, and is essential for Lutheran Christology. Regardless of which option we prefer, the divine monergism in the conversion of Christians, or that same activity in the conception of Jesus by the Spirit, each activity parallels and informs the other. By God's will, the Son became man, and we, through the Son, become God's children. If if we were around in the 16th century and went to Luther's church during his Advent hymns or during his Advent services and his Advent sermons, particularly those later as you approach uh, Christmas, and if we were around for his Christmas sermons, um, not only Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, but those of the Christmas season that follows, we would hear Luther repeatedly use this very theme and this very rationale, um, frequently preaching the language of Christ was born of the Virgin Mary so that he might also be born in us. See, Christ was, uh, 
born, um, conceived by the Holy Spirit so that by the Holy Spirit he might be conceived in us. So that just as Mary was pregnant with the Word, we too might become pregnant with the Word. And just very visceral, earthy language. Um, but just as Christ indwelt Mary in her belly, Christ indwelt us and makes, um, you know, and, and he, he goes on, makes our hearts into his manger, etc., etc. Which I think is a particularly attractive image because a manger is not clean or pure or <laughs> sanitized. There's animal stuff all over, and that's a that's a pretty good description of our hearts. And yet, there the pure, innocent Son of God is laid. Just beautiful. Okay, so again, we're um, with scare. We're making this distinction between the incarnation and the humiliation. And again, humiliation is technical language. It doesn't mean embarrassment. It doesn't mean that he was humiliated. It doesn't, you know, it's not a psychological effect, nor is it a sociological effect. It's, that's not what we mean by humiliation. He humbles himself. He lays aside his majesty, willingly uh, choosing to do this. And we want, to, uh, we want to make that distinct from his incarnation because he could be incarnate and be full power, God going straight through the human nature, um, you know, showing up, from the womb, as it were, in the womb, as it were, but from the womb, no different than he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, face shining like the sun, you know, how would that be? Uh, eyes like flames of fire <laughs> in your little baby. Uh, that, that could have been, so, so the incarnation is not identical to the humiliation, okay? To become incarnate doesn't necessarily mean to be hidden or veiled in the flesh, he could have taken on flesh and not been hidden or veiled. His glory not be hidden or veiled. So these two things need to be kept separate um, so that we see his incarnation as one thing, or one side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is that he simultaneously uh, enters the state of humiliation. That is, he humbles himself. He does not shine forth with his full majesty and power. Make sense? Okay, so that's really scarce point, I mean, in this paragraph with this distinction between incarnation and humiliation. All right, on to the next paragraph, uh, 40, um, first full paragraph on page 40. At this point in our discussion of the virgin birth, we must distinguish between Christ's humiliation and his conception and birth. The impression is often given and received that his humiliation consists in the very fact that he was born. Such is not the case. The humiliation has to do with how Christ entered our world, not the fact that he did. The Nicene Creed goes one step further than does the Apostles' Creed in making a distinction between the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary and his humiliation. In the recitation of the Creed, it was traditional for the congregation to bow or kneel at the words, He was made man. This distinction between Christ's humiliation and his conception is difficult to make because it is one of logic, cause and effect, and does not involve a time sequence. Quote, he had his majesty immediately at his conception, even in his mother's womb, but as the apostle testified, he laid it aside, and as Dr. Luther explains, he kept it hidden during the state of humiliation and did not use it at all times, but only when he wanted to. All right, and that's a quote from the Formula of Concord out of the uh, 
Lutheran confessions. So that's, I mean, that's just technical language for what I was exactly saying a moment ago. If he wanted to come out shining like the Transfiguration, he certainly could have. And, and so in that respect, that's equally an incarnation. The fact that he comes in the form of a man, and in fact, in the form of a sinful man, you know, subject to the curse, subject to weakness and sickness and that kind of thing, that's the aspect we call his humiliation, his humbling himself to join us in our estate with only exception to sin. Scare continues, at the moment of the incarnation, neither before nor after, the divine Son of God is humiliated, but not in such a way that his assuming a human nature can necessarily be equated with his humiliation. In other words, there's nothing inherently anti-God in God becoming man. We have been rather reformed in our thinking where we've made this huge, vast chasm between uh, the uncreated God and the created creature, the infinite and the finite, as if the two can't have anything to do with each other. Now, Lutherans, of course, assert that those things are distinct, but not in such a way that there's no communication or possibility of communication between them. The finite is quite capable of the infinite as the Incarnation itself shows. Scare continues, the distinction was important for the formula of Concord. Without it, Christ's glorification would require that he would have had to set aside his human nature if indeed the human nature was in itself the cause of his humiliation. Okay, again, reference to the formula of Concord. But, but what does that mean, right? If it is somehow inherently humiliating or humbling for God to become man, then for God to return to glory, he would have to do what? Divest himself of his humanity. So then, the, if that were true, the Christian story would end with Jesus' death on the cross and his going back up into heaven, but his body would remain in the tomb because it would be sub-God to remain and retain in the body, to retain his body after the resurrection. You see? So the fact that the fully glorified Jesus, to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, has a human body, shows you that to have a human body is not in and of itself humbling to God or humiliating to God. And so then precisely when the body of Christ is raised, no longer in the likeness of sin, no longer subject to the curse, to catching cold or getting sick or ultimately even dying, uh, this is, since this is precluded, uh, you can now see in his body fully glorified and magnified, uh, not a humiliation of God whatsoever, but simply God as man. Right? So that really just helps us clarify that these ideas of incarnation and humiliation are not identical. All right, um, very bottom of 40, the last, uh, last couple words there. Subsequently, a resurrection of his body would have been impossible for him. In the worship life of the people, the distinction is less than completely clear, as it is put in the Te Deum, and you remember this, uh, when thou tookest upon is it thee? Yeah, it is thee here. I think it's thyself in our hymnal. When thou tookest upon thee to deliver man, thou didst humble thyself to be born of a virgin. 
The confessional, so a scarce point here is that while not incorrect, that's not clear. That's not as clear as you would hope. Right? Nothing wrong with singing that, okay? but it's not as clear as you would hope because the, the humiliation, the incarnation are viewed as overlapping. They're not made distinct here. Well, that's no big deal. He's just saying that if that's, if that's your only source of Christology, it lends itself to this confusion. Right? Okay, the confessional distinction between the conception and humiliation is based on Philippians 2, with its praise of Christ as the God-man who submits himself to humiliation. The humiliation does not consist in the incarnation, but in Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, surrendering the divine prerogatives, belonging by right through the act of incarnation to his human nature. The debate over Philippians 2 centered in whether the subject was Christ according to his divine nature, as the Reformed held, or whether it was Christ according to his human nature, as the Lutherans held. At stake in the controversy was whether Christ's human nature was given divine attributes, which the Reformed denied. Again, that's the finite is not capable of the infinite. The Reformed refusal to attribute the properties of the divine nature directly to the human nature was based upon the philosophical principle that led to their refusal to believe that Christ is present according to his human nature in the bread and wine of the sacrament. Because of the personal union at the moment of his conception, according to his human nature, Christ shone forth with all the glory of God. Uh, and there's the, the morphate to theu, um, the, the form of God, which was his by right. He hid this divine appearance, this morphate to theu, this form of God, and assumed the appearance of a servant, morphate to dulu, literally the form of a slave. And in this humble form, in which he was not recognizable as God, he was put to death by crucifixion. Okay, does that make sense? So the incarnate one has the, the morphe to theu, has the form of God. Even though he's, he's become incarnate, he has the form of God, much as we see again on the Mount of Transfiguration. But this is precisely what he lays aside, Philippians 2, taking on the form of a servant. Remember, he counts a f the form of God not a thing to be grasped, not a thing to be held on to, um, but empties himself, taking on the morphe to dulu, the, the form of a slave. Right? Okay. So that makes a distinction then uh, between the incarnation and the humiliation. And by the way, it also then fully allows for uh, the, the divine nature to communicate its attributes to the human nature, what we often call in Lutheran theology the genus maestaticum, the, the genus of majesty, that the divine nature, uh, it, that its majesty is transferred to the human nature such that the human nature can do what only the divine nature could do. Again, one of the classic examples of this and the difference between Lutherans and Reformed is John 20, the upper room, the human body of Christ appears in the midst of the room despite the locked doors. That human body doesn't do what a human body can do. 
that human body does what God can do, you see? And so the divine nature uh, penetrates through the human nature, causing the human nature to do divine things. Again, that's rejected in, in Calvinism and in, in Reformed teaching, such that Calvin himself says that Jesus had to sneak in through a window. <laughs> yeah. So there you see the difference. All right? Um, so anyway, that's what's at stake, and that's how to properly read and understand Philippians 2, which is really the, you know, just such a beautiful, beautiful passage, one of, the, one of the richest Christological passages we have in Paul, and then also so beautiful because it's anthropological. Paul begins this whole section by saying, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is, Jesus who... Um, considered not the form of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Not only that, but humbling himself to the point of death, even a despised, hateful, humiliating, shameful death, death on the cross. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself even further before God, um, and he will exalt you. Yeah. Um, completely underplayed in contemporary Lutheranism is the relationship between father and son, the obedience of the son. That's why we don't know how to interpret that passage that says he learned obedience by what he suffered. Because we don't pay any, we, all we see is Christ laying down his life for us, which is true, but only one side of the coin. Christ is also laying down his life for the father complete and perfect worship, complete and perfect obedience and fealty. And then again, taking it back to the main point of Philippians 2, that this mind would be yours also. Too often, Lutheran sanctification is emaciated down to mere service of the neighbor. Paul sees it in no such way. <laughs> Neither does Jesus. What we must do is see our service as service to God. And then in serving God, we serve neighbor. That's the proper order. Peter, uh, when Peter is restored at John chapter 21 by the Lord, after he has uh, denied his Lord three times by the charcoal fire, and in John 21, they're once more by the charcoal fire, hint, hint. And uh, what does Jesus say to him? Peter, do you love my sheep? No. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. See, that's the proper order. That's precisely the order of Christ on the cross. If you love the Father, you lay down your life for the Father. And in so doing, you lay down your life for all. Okay. If you love God, then you feed his sheep. If you love God, then you serve his neighbor. But I, like I said, my critique of modern Lutheranism, contemporary Lutheranism, not, not Lutheranism at its source, but contemporary Lutheranism, is we've lost that entire paradigm. In fact, we've seen that as somehow wrong, that your, that your good works and your life and your mind would be in any way in service toward God. And we even say things like, God doesn't need your service, which sometimes implies God doesn't want your service, or it's inappropriate to perceive your service as a service to God. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Philippians 2 demonstrates that, and I could bore you with a number of other quotations. In fact, well, I don't know. Now I think I'm preaching another sermon on Sunday, not that one. But eventually that'll come about in sermonic form. Okay, well, that, um, 
that gives us an introduction then uh, to this distinction between the humiliation and the incarnation with Philippians 2 as backdrop. Now, we've got just a couple minutes, and I only want to finish uh, one final point with you over on page 42, and that'll bring us to an end of the chapter. <clears throat> Last paragraph on page 42. The formula of Concord teaches that in his earthly ministry, Jesus could and did on occasion set aside the form of a slave to manifest his majesty. For example, John speaks about Jesus manifesting his glory in the miracle at Cana. The pericope of the transfiguration presents the clearest incident where Jesus did reveal the glory hidden during the humiliation. The transfiguration, or uh, metamorph metamorpho, yeah. the transfiguration is described as a shining like the sun with his clothes as white as light. Reference to Matthew 17. Both Paul and Matthew are referring to Jesus' outward appearance and not to his nature. The language used here to describe Jesus in the transfiguration resembles that of the apocalyptic Jesus in Revelation 1, 12 through 16. And that, by the way, is the text I was conflating when I talked about his eyes as flames of fire. It's the same thing. Um, the Jesus you see uh, in Revelation 1 is the same thing as you see in the transfiguration. In the transfiguration, Jesus allowed his disciples a glimpse of his divine majesty mediated through the human nature, which would be permanently revealed after the resurrection. With this outward majestic form, Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road, reference to Acts 9. Though after his resurrection, Jesus reveals what is rightfully his, he has also given it by his Father to signify that he has carried out the divine will. Philippians 2.9. Yeah, and this, this by the way, um, is to some, to some extent, it's at least part and parcel of what's going on, why so many don't recognize Jesus after his resurrection. He's glorified. It doesn't mean that he's, he's shining with the sun and blinding them, you know, on the lake, for example, when they're coming in and... Um, they haven't caught any fish, and he has them catch 153. Uh, it's not like he's shining like the sun there, but they don't really recognize it as him. You know, Mary, Mary Magdalene thinks he's the gardener. He walks on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, and they don't recognize him until he reveals himself in the breaking of the bread. And so there's this sense in which there's complete continuity. It's the same Jesus who was crucified who's raised. Such continuity that Thomas can even put his hands in his and put his fingers in his hands and his hand in his side. So there's complete continuity, and yet there's this discontinuity too, where Jesus isn't immediately recognizable, and at sometimes he shines with the fullness of the divine glory. And that, that really is showing to us in literary ways, to say nothing of the historical ways that those, those first apostles received him, that Jesus has now been glorified, that he is with us in a, in a different manner, in a different mode, not no longer made in the likeness of, of sinful man, to use Paul's language. 
Okay, that concludes our time. So let's end there. Next week, I don't think we'll plan to do anything more than uh, Chapter 5. And if that means uh, we... No, I don't think we will. But if that means we end a little short, we'll end a little short. Chapter 5, I really intend to dig into Matthew's Gospel with you. So uh, you may want to bring a Bible or, or have that handy because we'll, uh, we'll dig into a number of texts there next week. The Lord be with you. Amen.